Hey everyone, I wanted to jump on before the show starts and uh, share a few things with you guys. First off, thank you so much for all your support with the launch. It's been a really crazy six weeks trying to get everything together, but it's all come together pretty nicely, I think. And that leads me to a couple small favors I'd like to ask you guys. First and foremost, please share our work. Episodes, Danny's articles, blogs I've written, all of it. Please share it with anyone you can. Civilians own the military as much as anyone who's raised the right hand, and they deserve to know the truth about our military. Our only goal is to educate anyone who will listen about the experiences we've had. Also, please share our work with other veterans. Ask your grandpa, uncle, mom, brother, or friend who served. doesn't really matter when or where they served. And ask them to listen to an episode. We want to tell all the stories we can, no matter who tells them or where they come from. And you all are helping us to do that. Next, if you haven't had a chance already, please drop us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you like about the podcast and what you don't like about it. iTunes reviews are very important to helping us find more listeners. Every single new listener really helps. Lastly, uh, a couple days ago, I posted our first patron-only post. I'm going to start steadily adding more to our Patreon page. Uh, Some brand new bonus episodes that are not released to the public. Um, Access to regular episodes about three days early patron-only writing from Danny and myself, and probably some other shit that I can't think of right now. To access these awesome extras, you have to be a contributor of ours on Patreon for at least five bucks a month. That's it, folks. Five bucks a month, and you help Danny and I keep churning out the good stuff and get a boatload of awesome extras. So keep listening, keep emailing and commenting on our work, and above all, keep fighting. Thank you. This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Hey, listeners, one of the things we're going to do in addition to these headlines is we're going to give you an idea of what we're reading, you know, which outlets we're looking at, what what outlets we trust, because, you know, I didn't know what to read years ago. You know, I was just flailing New York Times, whatever I could find. And sometimes it was good. And then sometimes it was uh, not really what I was looking for. So my first piece today comes from uh, the National Interest, which is, uh, is a great website and magazine. Um, sometimes abbreviated to TNI. And uh, the national interest is, is really sort of a small C conservative. You know, I know I'm a bit of a political liberal probably, but this is a small C conservative, maybe libertarian sort of uh, outlet that really wants to focus on realism in U.S. foreign policy. By that they mean prudence, 
sober strategy and, you know, weighing ends and means. So, so my article today is from Sam Heller, who's a, an excellent writer, uh, who's also a fellow at the Beirut-based um, Century Foundation. And his article is called America in Search of an Ungeneva for Syria. And the gist of this article, and I'm going to write a piece on this and probably be out next week, is that the United States has essentially committed itself to nation building in Syria. They're not going to say that because Trump ran on a non-nation building, you know, kind of platform. But then again, so did George W. Bush. But what's happening is we've had the Secretary of State, we've had Secretary of Defense both come out and say, hey, the U.S. military is staying in Syria. One article said to counter Iran. And another one said until we get a, a suitable settlement at Geneva. Geneva, of course, is the peace talks trying to end the Syrian civil war. Well, that sounds great, except for one tiny problem. There has been zero, remember what I just said, zero positive movement on the Geneva talks. Assad isn't going anywhere. We may want him to step down. That may be our preferred solution. That may be Saudi Arabia's preferred solution. But the inconvenient fact is Assad has already won that civil war, essentially. He doesn't control the whole country yet. But he controls all the key centers, all the key cities, most of the key sort of highway infrastructure. And with his Russian backing and his Iranian backing, he's not going anywhere. And so if, as Secretary of State Tillerson says, we're going to stay on the ground until we get a suitable solution at the Geneva Conventions, I assume that means Assad agreeing to step down eventually. That's forever war, man. That is us signing up for another forever war. Now, we may want regime change in Syria. You and I would probably both agree, right, Henry, that, you know, Bashar al-Assad is a douchebag. Absolutely. No denying it. You don't barrel bomb your people and maybe gas your people and not claim the title of, you know, tyrant, bully, and basic piece of shit. But there's a lot of assholes running a lot of countries in this world, and the U.S. military is a finite resource. Let's, uh, let's do a quick review of the last three regime changes that the United States attempted. Uh, exhibit A, Afghanistan. Yep, we're still there, folks. We're still there, and it's as violent as ever. Look at the bombings that are happening in Kabul with ambulances right now. That government is teetering on the verge of collapse. Exhibit B, Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom. An aptly titled, nice-sounding word, but the reality has been quagmire the growth of ISIS, and there are still Americans in Iraq. And what are we now? 14 and a half years since the invasion. Actually, I believe it'll be 15 years in two months. That'll be a great anniversary to celebrate. Yeah. Exhibit C, in case you thought this was a Republican problem, no, it's not, because Exhibit C is Barack Obama's regime change in Libya. Libya is still in the midst of civil war. It has two governments, which each claim that they are actually in charge of the country, and uh, the chaos that ensued from the Libyan civil war has only made West Africa a more dangerous place. And oh, by the way, we might not be in West Africa were it not for the sort of spillover from Libya. So those are the last three regime changes we tried. Why in the world would we think that we are A, going to convince Bashar al-Assad to stand down, or B, that a long-term military occupation of Syria's northeast until he agrees to step down isn't a recipe for disaster. It is. It is a recipe for disaster. 
And I want to yell it from the rooftops and try to get someone to listen. Because both parties, the mainstream of both parties, which, as you remember, supported the war in Iraq, so they're tainted forever. But the Mitch McConnells and the Chuck Schumers of the world are not the people we can look to to turn this thing around. They're just going to acquiesce with whatever the Trump administration or whatever follows the Trump administration comes up with. And that's the bottom line. There are so many pitfalls in Syria. Number one, we've got the United States Army and its Kurdish militias staring down the Russians along the Euphrates River. That's just waiting for some spark to catalyze a war. And that would be catastrophic. Then to the northwest, we have the Turks. They just invaded Syria. Remember when that used to be a big story? Remember when a NATO ally invading a country we had soldiers in was a big story? No, not anymore. We're too busy worrying about tweets uh, that that the president does, uh, notionally probably from the toilet, it seems like, at 2 in the morning. Look, all I'm saying is not that the Kurds don't deserve our support. I think uh, they are tragic people who deserve their own country. Not that I like Bashar al-Assad. I don't. But that there are too many pitfalls for a forever, perpetual U.S. occupation of Syria. And quite frankly, that's what I see in our future. Well, with Jim Mattis announcing that we're essentially back into a a new Cold War um, with Russia, it makes perfect fucking ironic sense that we would be staring them down there in Syria where we are. Because that's all, right, all that we're going to, I mean, aside for, you know, worst case scenario was what you just described, something, you know, the soldiers on opposite lines of each other do something stupid happens and we start fighting. It's not impossible. It's very, very possible. Um, Absolutely. But then secondary to that is we have the buildup. We have the new Cold War buildup. And so we're talking about missile defense. We're talking about armor because that's the only way we could possibly count, quote unquote, counter the Russians is with armor. So it, 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 it does. It's just endless quagmire. It just that, that, that's, that's the new t- tune of the nation, folks. Endless fucking quagmire somewhere. If there isn't a quagmire, we're going to create one. And it's yeah, just, We'll find a way. We'll find, it's the American way. We will find a way to fuck it up. Yeah, it's just, it's just more of the expansion of the military-industrial complex. I, I, and um, when you were talking about Libya, I was thinking, just going over the whole Niger story so far. Um, when I say Niger story, guys, I'm talking about uh, four special forces troops that uh, were killed there. Um, but just like how all of that expanded down from Libya and that there wasn't any consideration at the time by Obama about the fallout. Here's a guy, a guy who came in, came in as president and accepted two wars and then basically has from the, from the presidential grave, so to speak, now started a third because he didn't learn the lessons of the first two. Absolutely. And and it's incredible because you're right. He ran on such a different platform. I think the guy is uh, is coarse and uh, unsophisticated in his analysis, from what I can tell. Uh, but at least on the campaign trail, he he seemed to promise something new in foreign policy. Yes, he and, did. Uh, he did. That, that just. And I actually thought on a few of those issues, I'm I'm not afraid to say I thought he was onto something. You know, maybe our NATO allies should pull more of their weight. Maybe the Middle East is a big sinkhole. I mean, he had some ideas that made sense you know, in a rudimentary way, and yet he's playing by the same script that he'll 
would have if she was president. And, and, and it's just really demoralizing. So, guys, I want to talk about something today called a sizzle reel. And for those of you who don't know, uh, a sizzle reel is essentially a, a video or a bunch of photos that somebody has of, of it can be of their favorite things. But when it comes to veterans, when it comes to the military, our sizzle reels have a lot more of the color red. I can't count how many times during my time in service somebody offered to show me a video or a picture of something gross and disgusting. Or, you know, the, the dead people in Iraq, um, other kinds of explosions, big craters in the ground, you know, it, 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 the sky's the limit on what we would end up showing each other. And so recently it was in the news that a... Uh, a troop of ours, and I, I think based on the truck that he was driving in, he was a special forces of some kind. He shot a, fired a shotgun at the driver's side window of a passing truck. Um, when we were in country, used to uh, some guys used to call them jingle trucks, but they're just a little, little panel truck that you can carry a whole bunch of people in the back or wood or whatever else. But anyways. I don't think the round was a traditional round because it didn't go straight through the window. It just spider webbed right as it hit. But of course, it absolutely terrified the guy inside thinking he was going to die. And then you hear the guy laughing, the, the guy who fired it. These are little windows into day-to-day into -day life in combat. You have to understand is this, this isn't out of the ordinary. Guys sharing pictures of dead guys is not out of the ordinary. The next part of it is the part that makes me much, much more angry. Just a couple days ago, it came out that a troop that was somehow connected to the guys that we lost in Niger was publicly sharing pictures of some of the deceased soldiers there on the battlefield. I know that the AFRICOM and their chain of command has been trying to track that down, trying to get that stopped. This is common, folks. It really is. And... The reason I say it's common is because everybody has different reasons for joining the military. There are guys that this is their reason for joining the military. They're waiting to blow something up or shoot something. And I don't mean the guys that just say they like to blow shit up. I mean guys that legitimately pursue that kind of violence. And if they don't have it in front of them, they'll create it in one way or another. It's really just disturbing what you're describing. And you were an NCO and, uh, and I was an officer and, and I think we both have kind of probably figured out how to identify some of those guys, you know, the, the sociopaths or the adrenaline junkies that are sort of out for the thrill and, and prone to doing something, you know, stupid or um, unethical. And, you know, it may, when you talk about like the SF guy and firing that shotgun, you know, you just wonder, like, where's the leadership? Yep. And. The sad thing is in order to be in the special forces, the guy's got to be like an E6 probably. And so he should be a leader in and of himself. Obviously he's not acting like one, but then it makes you wonder where is his team leader? You know, who's a captain or where is his section sergeant uh, who is uh, probably an E8, right? And the senior NCO in a, uh, in an A team. And, and then there's usually a warrant officer as well. So where, where is the leadership? And, uh, and why are they not policing this kind of behavior? I think it just goes to that's where people are, you know, that the, I know if that happened in my unit, if a guy did that, even if the, 
leadership at the time was really angry about it, there would be serious discussion about not reporting it. They would not want to deal with the fallout of whatever it was. And usually, unless somebody was legit, really seriously hurt or killed, the discussion would always be had about, is it better just not to say anything? So Right, just keep it, keep it in-house, keep it quiet. Yeah, yeah, and I think right here what we're discussing, it, it really points to that crisis of leadership that the military is having because there needs to be that serious discussion about, is this person right for what we're wanting them to do in the service? Um, there was a guy that I, I served with who, he was an E4 at the time I knew him, and he had gotten kicked out of um, his special forces school um, for a DUI and he ended up having several more of them but he still managed to make it back to his A school and become and go back to special forces some two, two and a half years later why was he still in the army? It, it, it's that is it that freaking important to put people in boots that we're willing to put these assholes in places of leadership? I mean, it's a, it's a great point, but at certain times, the military, especially the army, has been hard up for recruits. Oh, yes. And oh, yeah. we've, like, doubled the size of the special forces since 9-11. We've kind of quietly done that. Well, look, that doesn't necessarily increase the caliber of special forces. It just means more folks are coming in. If anything, it might dilute it. And these guys are supposed to be big boys. So they operate independently, 12-man teams, often hundreds of miles from the nearest conventional American unit. We, we trust these people to be the adults in the room. Yes. Yes. And it really upsets me because you've heard the term strategic corporal. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, even a corporal or even a specialist or a sergeant can do something that has strategic ramifications. I mean, look at those idiots in the National Guard unit at Abu Ghraib. Yep. And I'm sure this resonates with you to a certain extent. They had strategic effects they got American soldiers killed. Yep. They hurt the very credibility of our nation. Now, this special forces soldier firing the shotgun probably didn't have that kind of an effect. But I'll tell you what, when videos like that get out, the locals are going to be affected by it. Mm -hmm. It's going to color the way they view American troops, and it puts their brothers in harm's way. And that should be the one thing that even an immature soldier cares about. Sadly, that is often not the case. But we... <sighs> You hope for good guys, and you try to do the best you can with what you get, I guess. Yeah, and that's, you know, just another another leadership challenge. And uh, part of the reason that so many corporate entities want military leaders is because they're they're used to dealing with those kinds of challenges and personnel issues. And uh, there's something to be said for that. But there's also a lack of leadership that's displayed uh, all too often. And, uh, and it really does hurt us. It really does hurt the American cause and put the military in harm's way. So uh, my next piece is from the American conservative. Uh, again, it's funny that I, I would choose two conservative outlets to, to highlight this week, given my own political proclivities, which probably aren't uh, too uh, transparent to the listeners. But the, the American conservative is another great outlet. Um, they want uh, sort of a non-interventionist uh, foreign policy, uh, a bit of a a more minimalist approach to foreign affairs and cost-benefit analysis of our operations. And so I, I really like this restrainer element that's at the American conservative. Well, this author today is uh, Andrew J. Basevich, uh, Colonel retired Basevich is one of my favorite writers. 
he's written five or six books about American Empire and the all-volunteer military and its shortfalls. And he wrote in the American Conservative uh, this this great article, and you can tell from the headline, it was called The Real News We Ignore at Our Peril. And obviously, he's playing on the whole idea of Trump and fake news and, and how he says Russiagate is fake news and, and, and all that. And what Basevich is saying here is, look, while we're focused on the minutia, on the circus that's unfolding in the White House, there is real news going on that's getting ignored. I mean, you've talked about this a million times, whether it was Yemen or West Africa, uh, Afghanistan. We, we constantly say this. Look, the media is not covering it. They don't act like we're at war. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. And, and we've been banging that drum for a while. Well, Basevich did a great job of it uh, last week in the American Conservatives. And the real news he's talking about is uh, involves Afghanistan, okay? Which I know we are just banging that drum over and over again every week. But I'm not going to stop until we really look at the strategy there. And uh, he talks specifically about this report, like a report on basically foreign aid into Afghanistan. And they they did a basic audit of you know hundreds of billions of dollars of assistance, military and economic to Afghanistan over the last number of years. And they figured out that of all the money that's been sent, more than half, more than half has gone to overhead costs rather than actual development on the ground. And enormous amounts of that money have just disappeared, just disappeared. Hundreds of billions of U.S. and other countries that are allied with us, taxpayers' money, have been wasted in Afghanistan. And it's not as though the outputs made it worth it have they massive suicide bombings in the heart of kabul this week in the heart of kabul the, the the center that's supposed to be secured not secured at all more afghan provinces and districts in taliban control than there have been in 15 years almost no reporting about this and now hundreds of billions of dollars wasted through government corruption or through overhead waste you know he's right that is the kind of real news that we ignore at our peril so next time we're reading a tweet or next time we're watching the Real Housewives of wherever the fuck, let's take a moment and think about that real news. You know, I'm not going to talk too much about Afghanistan. I'm not going to go into the strategy again. I got another piece coming up about it. I'm a little obsessed maybe because I uh, sweat so much and, and, and lost so many people there. But this corruption problem is serious. You know, I was watching the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, and we recently talked to Colonel Retired Greg Dadis about Vietnam. And, and one of the things that sort of stands out is how is illegitimate and corrupt. Really preferred a unified Vietnam and did not have a lot of respect for the government in Saigon. And what I'm afraid of is that we have the exact same situation unfolding in Afghanistan today. A friend and mentor of mine who's now a brigadier general that will remain nameless talked to me about the poppy palaces, that's what they call them in quotes, that many of the Afghan government officials he was partnered with would show him pictures of. Some of them were in Kabul. Many of them were in Mumbai in India. You see, the poppy palaces were fueled by either drug money from the poppy that was grown by these government officials or the kickbacks they took from the drug dealers who often worked for the Taliban or American aid money that they skimmed off the top. And the funniest thing, or the sickest thing, is these generals in the Afghan army, these government bureaucrats, they weren't even embarrassed 
or afraid. They were showing at the time a full bird colonel these photos. Look at this great mansion I built in Mumbai. Oh, really? How'd you afford that on a $40,000 a year salary or probably less, you know? And that's the kind of stuff that Basevich talks about in this article. And kudos to him for bringing it up, you know? And he, and he does it in the American Conservative, but you notice he didn't do it in the New York Times because probably the New York Times doesn't want to report on that because the war in Afghanistan is old news. It is old news. We've got fake news. We've got real news. Then we've got yesterday's news, and no one wants to report the old, tired news of the failed war in Afghanistan. But you know what? There's still 14,000 American soldiers there. President Trump indicated this week he may send another 1,000. They're still dying over there, even if it is in modest numbers. Every life counts. Every dollar spent counts. This is our tax money, and, and, and I'm just sick of it. And you know what? I, I think you know, on this podcast and in our writings, you're going to see us kind of ringing the alarm bell about Afghanistan. I want to uh, do some research more in depth into our contracting process. Um, both, you know, who, who's involved on this end? Who are the who are the people that we send to make those kind of contracts? And how do we learn more about them? You know, it, it's it's not something that we, the process, like you said, of stuff missing from the news. Um, we don't ever hear about that. Don't ever hear about the no bid contracts that end up going to a very specific contractor for reasons that don't seem very important, but it was enough to get a no bid contract where no one else gets a chance to have it. Absolutely. And one of the things, I'm really glad you brought up contracting. Most people forget that if there's 14,000 American soldiers in Afghanistan, that means there's at least 14,000 contractors. Now, not all of them are Americans, but we're talking private military contractors. We're talking logistics and sustainment contractors. I mean, it's at least a one-to-one. -one. You know, at certain times in the wars, it's been like a two-to-one ratio of contractors to soldiers because, you know, a soldier, one soldier requires so much sustainment just to stay on the front lines, you know, and to just kind of keep the trains running. And uh, maybe we'll do an episode on that, Henry, you know, like about just contracting in the military. Maybe we can get like a former uh, civil affairs officer on or something just just to talk about the maybe to make us smart on the contracting process more than we are and inform sort of the listeners about how does this work and what are the pitfalls? Right. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. Yeah, I um, I think it, it, we just it, there needs to be a better light on it. That's all I can say. It's just it, it, it's not something that as soldiers we I, no one at my rank would ever deal with that other than please move these boxes from here to there. And, yeah, I mean I, I hired some contractors to do small work. You know, uh, I had a contractor who helped uh, gravel in like a, a medevac landing zone on our small outpost in Afghanistan. You know, I, I've dealt in the tens of thousands of dollars, maybe up to the hundreds of thousands, and so. You know, I can only speak to my own individual experience, but the, the potential for graft and corruption is there. I'll just give one example. And this wasn't really a contracting issue, but we had a program called Cash for Work in Afghanistan. And we essentially paid almost a thousand local villagers to just like not kill us. You know, notionally, ostensibly, they were like painting lines on the few roads there were and they were cleaning the canals and, and sometimes it was good work and the idea was look if we give them a paycheck even if it is paltry at least they won't join the taliban and we had some success with it but the only reason i bring up this story is not to say oh look at this interesting thing we did in, in afghanistan but to show you just in a small way the potential for graft and corruption 
about 95% of the cash for work employees we had were illiterate. They couldn't even write their own name, let alone sign their name. And so what they would do is they would dip their thumb in ink like it was election day. And they would sign for the money every week by just like making a print with their finger. Or sometimes they would just like scribble something that looked like a name. And then other people drew like little figures, like cartoons. I I shit you not. And we accepted it. We were like, yep, okay, fine. And then we gave them their money and went on. And, you know, we weren't stealing money. And I mean, I don't think they were directly stealing money, although I'm sure they still had to pay kickbacks to the Taliban. But think about it. If that's happening at the lower level with tens of thousands of dollars, what's going on? at the the heads of these ministries in Kabul when the numbers are millions and then billions of dollars. It's scary. And I, and I think we do need to cast more light on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So last, uh, two episodes ago, episode 5.0, um, I covered a whole bunch of stuff about the VA and I have a little bit more today, not nearly as long as that was, but this is about something called individual unemployability. And, For people who don't know, when you get out of the military, you can file a claim with the VA to pay you money essentially for any injuries that you got while you were in service. And if the VA agrees to that, they give you a certain percentage based on your injury and say, you know, send you on your way. Then you have guys that was like me a few years ago where you don't have a high enough rating to get to 100% where you would essentially have a, a, a living income. Um, they have a program called individual employability. And that is if you cannot get a sustainable job, a job within a certain, uh, I can't remember the phrasing right now, how they described it. But if you're unable to obtain work, they can actually give you the rating of being at a hundred percent, even though your ratings are less. And still you have, have to have several big ratings to, to even qualify for this. So the reason I explained all of that is because there's been several proposals over the last year to limit individual unemployability to people once they've reached the age of their qualify for Social Security. So essentially, there's a, there's a huge, huge pay jump between 90% and 100% on the VA's compensation schedule. So imagine you re- reach Social Security age and you're also a veteran who's at 100% under this program, you would essentially then drop down to what your, whatever your rating is supposed to be. Could be 60%, could be 70%. The point is, is that it could be a drop as much as $1,200 a month. And the idea is, is that because these fellas got social security, that that social security money can take the place of that VA compensation. And I call bullshit on that. Not having to absolutely not having to work that whole time, and then qualifying fully qualifying for a hundred percent, but them dropping you down because you got this other government program that you also fucking qualify for that you paid into like the normal American worker does. And it's ridiculous because when you think about, yeah, there are millions of veterans that are disabled. Yeah, it's a lot of money when you add it up. But it's peanuts compared to the corporate welfare we pay in bailouts to the banks when they steal our pensions. Yep. And it's pennies compared to the outputs to just basic defense, say the trillion dollar nuclear modernization of our basically, I mean, centuries or I'm sorry, decades old nuclear force. I and mean, we're spending big money 
elsewhere. Trillions of dollars. One estimate I read was $11 trillion in total costs for the whole war on terror. Jesus. We have no problem signing that money away. But now a veteran turns, you know, 62 and a half years old, and we're like, oh, I'm sorry, we can't we can't afford $1,200 a month, you know, for you and thousands like you. I mean, it's, it's, it's bananas. It's bananas because I'm so sick of thanks for your service to your face and then fuck you when it comes to your benefits, you know, behind the scenes when it gets absolutely, hard. absolutely. And, and it needs to be balanced. That balancing act needs to be discussed anytime somebody wants to send troops to war or continue a war. Do you actually weigh out both the human cost of life and the economic cost of life for these guys returning from warfare? Are we going to have an honest conversation about it before the first bullet flies? Granted, we're in an endless war right now, so that's kind of a lost concept, but that needs to be discussed every time. Because if you can't take care of the troops after they're done, after they're hurt and maimed and don't have lives anymore, don't send them to war in the first place. Absolutely. I mean... Absolutely. When you think about when you add up the ca- the cost of war, it's not just the bombs dropped and the transportation costs to get over there. It's you've got to say, I've heard estimates as much as three to one, meaning three dollars spent on VA benefits, for example, after the war to take care of our veterans for every dollar spent on the actual war. You've got to take that into account. That's the cost benefit analysis we need, because if it's a marginal national security interest, maybe it's not worth send a hundred thousand soldiers you know maybe it's not worth having in iraq what we have about five thousand killed and about fifty thousand wounded well that's just the physical wounds uh what are you going to do with a guy like me who's you know got ptsd what are you going to do about somebody suffering from crippling depression or um you know just uh you know tbi traumatic brain injury you know those don't often get counted in the wounded but there's like two or three of those for every guy who takes shrapnel in his leg yep and we're not counting them. You know, we're not thinking about that when we look at the cost. And uh, I'm glad you brought this story up because we, we got to keep talking about the VA. We got to keep talking about benefits for soldiers when the bullets stop flying because it's a national tragedy when we try to pinch pennies with our veterans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so one more little part, and this is a, a, a different a part of a different story, but it's connected to episode 5.0 if you guys want to listen to it about the other other VA things that were going on. Um, the VA Secretary, David Shulkin, has now announced that the VA is not going to study marijuana for use in PTSD. They had a study lined up. They had the director of the study. She was gathering subjects. They were having difficulty getting their marijuana. And then they closed it down. And he's saying now they're just not going to study it. I've read a lot about how difficult it is for them to get the marijuana crops that are needed to do these kind of studies because it's a Schedule One substance that has to be made by a particular farm um, and under a particular set of restrictions. So not only are, are you know they're trying to curb opiates in whatever way they can, which is a good thing, but they're not allowing us this legitimate second option that veterans need and probably are already using, but should be legitimized. Yeah. And if they're in the wrong state because of our strange federal system, they may, uh, they may be self-medicating, uh, in a technically illegal way. And you know what? 
it doesn't take a whole lot to get yourself a misdemeanor or even a felony conviction. No, that no, changes it doesn't. your life forever, changes your employability forever, makes the life of that veteran all the worse. And what a what a, what a waste when you really think about it. You know, we'll tell a veteran, uh, "Hey, if you want to drink yourself to death with scotch, uh, that's fine. That's okay. Scotch is good." Uh, oh, you're self-medicating with marijuana? Nope. We might have to fill a jail cell with you. You know, it's ludicrous. It's 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 ludicrous, and we don't want to talk about it. We just want to accept it. And we got Jeffy Sessions uh, in the uh, Jefferson Beauregard uh, Sessions over in the uh, Attorney General spot, and all he wants to do is make it even harder to legalize marijuana. All he wants to do is increase federal penalties. Uh, it's. It's mind-blowing, and, and we need to keep highlighting it. We need to keep highlighting the inconsistency in this kind of a, uh, in this kind of a decision when it yes. comes to the VA and when it comes to the government more generally. And I get that there's a lot of obstacles for them to study it, but the, for, for the highest, some of the highest government officials in our land to say these are obstacles we can't overcome, you're, you're, you're just punching yourself in the nuts, essentially. It, they can do it. It just takes time, and they have to cut up whatever red tape. Is the red tape worth it or not? And and that's where I'm at. Is it you know it should be worth it to us? All right. So uh, so for my last headline today, uh, I got another Nick Terse piece. Uh, this one uh, is from Tom Dispatch, but it was cross posted on like the Nation and uh, the Huffington Post and a whole bunch of other outlets, Salon. But uh, you know Tom Dispatch is an awesome place uh, to read, an awesome place to uh, to follow. I don't just say that because I've been writing there for um, for a year now. But it, beyond myself, there are just so many even just better writers and thinkers. Tom Dispatch is uh, probably uh, on the on the left end of the spectrum, although he would consider himself non-political. So whereas my first two outlets, which were the American Conservative and the uh, National Interest, that I recommended. Uh, they were sort of on the small C uh, right conservative side. You know, this is a little bit more on the left. But the article that I want to talk about is called Special Ops at War. And, and I really like the, the subtitle, which was From Afghanistan to Somalia, Special Ops Achieve Less with More. Achieve Less with More. You know, that headline is specifically about the special forces, but I think it could just as easily be said about the U.S. military in general. For 17 years now, nearly 17 years, the U.S. military has achieved much less than we hoped with much more than we ever thought we'd have to commit. You and I have both served in, uh, between the two of us, two failed wars. I would argue that we have another one uh, kicking off in Syria, Yep. as I talked about in an earlier headline. To say nothing of West Africa, Yemen, Somalia, and East Africa— what Nick Terse is trying to say with this article is that the U.S. Special Forces went from having a presence in, you know, don't get me wrong, dozens of countries before 9-11. But that has suddenly changed from dozens of countries to scores, if not hundreds of countries. And, you know, at this point, at least 70 percent of the countries on the earth have special forces, A teams, B teams, some other element on the ground. Now that is extraordinary. That's an extraordinary number. We are the only country on the earth that does that. I can assure you, if there were Russian or Chinese special forces in Mexico, 
or in, you know, Newfoundland in Canada, right on the American borders, you can bet we would be raising hell. But when the United States does it, it's okay. I have problems with interventionism more generally. I have problems with dividing the earth into spheres of influence for our military and thinking that we can solve the problems with our military. But even if I didn't think that, even if I didn't think that, you would at least hope that having special forces teams in 70% of the countries on the earth would have made us safer, right? You would hope it, well, at least it must have gotten rid of some threats. It me, at least it must have uh, diminished the number of terror groups that are, uh, that, that are contesting the United States right now. But what Nick Turse tells us is it's the exact opposite, the exact opposite. Uh, for example, let's take Africa. We all know that I love talking about Africa. Vice News reported in 2012, right? They, they didn't just report this. They got it from a Special Operations Command strategic planning document, okay? So uh, a SOCOM strategic planning document said that in 2012, there were five prime terror groups on the African continent. Okay, that's, that sucks. But we got to get that number down, don't we? Can't have five. Well, uh, four years later, after we increased by a factor of at least two the number of special forces teams and the number of special forces operations on the continent, what did the Pentagon's, the Pentagon's, mind you, Africa Center for Strategic Studies say? No, they offered a tally of 21 active militant Islamist groups now. Let's just do the math on that real quick. Uh, double the amount of American special forces teams. Instead of decreasing the number of terror groups on the continent, we increased them by a factor of four. Now, that's if you believe the Pentagon. The Intercept, which is another great outlet that I recommend, reported that the full number was actually, quote, closer to 50 by 2015. Closer to 50. If the Intercept's number is correct, then terror groups in Africa have actually increased by a factor of 10. But I'll take the low number. I'll take the 21 that the Pentagon admits to. And the question becomes... What, is the, what does this say about U.S. military operations more broadly and special operations operations more specifically? It tells us that, you know, this is a, a, great, a great quote from William Hartung, who I know uh, rather well from the Center for International Policy in D.C. He said, uh, quote, it's another case of failing to learn the lessons of the United States policy of endless war, that military action is as likely or more likely to spark terrorist action as to reduce or prevent it. That's not a comfortable idea to wrap your head around. Americans don't like to think that we could make the world a more dangerous or a more chaotic place. But what if the empirical evidence says we are? What if it tells us that at the very least we're not helping and at worst we're making the situation much, much worse by our, by our presence? One of the next parts of the article that I thought was really uh, interesting, and I think you'll agree, Henry, is uh, talking about, well, what are the human effects of all these special operations deployments? And uh, General Thomas, uh, who is a, is a general in SOCOM, said that, quote, most soft units are employed to their sustainable limits right now because of the growing demand for soft. He said that in front of Congress. Well, whether it's special forces or the U.S. military more generally, what are we seeing? Increased depression rates, increased divorce rates, increased suicide rates more training accidents, when you stress a force past its reasonable, sustainable limit, this is what's going to happen. It's not a sustainable solution. So let's review. 
increased U.S. military presence around the world appears to be only increasing the number of terrorist threat groups, and it's breaking the army itself. It's hurting soldiers. So that's why Nick Terse's article says special operations achieves, quote, less with more. Think about that for a second. Less with more. It's disturbing. But fear not. There are people out there with solutions. In fact, there's there's one Democrat and one Republican senator who each have their own solution. Jack Reed, who is a West Pointer. I met him uh, when I was a cadet. I have a lot of respect for the guy. Uh, he's the ranking Democrat on the Senate Armed Services Committee. But this is where I disagree with him. He says that the solution is to, quote, increase numbers and resources for special forces. Well, wait a second. Correct me if I'm wrong. We've already increased the size of special forces by a factor of two since 9-11. They're not going to be all that special if we keep increasing them. I mean uh, – what exactly what makes them special is that they are a small elite group and this implies that there are just recruits just lining up to join the military well we know that's not necessarily the case they're you know just barely making their recruiting numbers now the all-volunteer force has just limits by the very nature of being an all-volunteer force so the idea that we could just increase numbers and, and just take them out of the blue and just create more social forces that that's bothersome and it doesn't sound like a sustainable solution well let's see what the republicans have for us mainstream republicans Senator Joni Ernst, Republican, she said, yeah, maybe we have to increase the number of special forces. But actually, uh, she prefers to farm out some of special forces operations to other forces. And this is like the SFABs we talked about in one of our previous episodes. So, well, we can't just like make more special forces. So we'll softify the army, right? The what? softification of the army. We'll take more soldiers that are in the conventional force and make them similar to special forces. We'll give them special forces missions. Senator uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis has already indicated that such moves are planned. Turning over, over operations to capable indigenous forces or to capable conventional U.S. forces seems the more sustainable solution. This is according to Senator Joni Ernst. Wow. I don't even know what to say about that. So we're going to make the special forces not special anymore because we're just going to recruit more and more and more of them until they're not special. Or we're going to turn their jobs over to conventional forces and expect that special, you know, conventional guys like you and I can do it just as well as the highly trained special forces. It's crazy talk because, as I've already told you, point number one, let's review. More special forces operations on continents like Africa and Southwest Asia have only increased the number of terror groups. And two... The over-deployment of these units has taken them past their sustainable limit and caused increases in suicide and divorce rates and basically breaking the force. And now the only solutions – you notice that no one either on the Democratic or Republican side came up with what seems like a rational solution to me. Nobody said let's do less. Nobody said, well, maybe this isn't working. Maybe we should just like tone down the number of operations and, and limit our deployments overseas. No, no. We don't – no, we can't, we can't even – think about that what we have to do is either increase the number of special forces or turn the rest of the army into little special forces guys we'll call them special forces light the softification of the army it's crazy it's unsustainable and it's crazy uh i can't think of putting convention guy conventional guys so detached in that way they would we have enough deaths now already as it is with in that situation i couldn't even imagine it, it's really really it's dangerous talk 
you know, you and I were both in conventional units. I bet we were both in some excellent units. I was in some good units. I was in some bad units. But I was not in any unit where I could have taken just 12 of my guys and sent them into a country a thousand miles from the nearest conventional support and expected them to be able to achieve strategic goals. No. It's not a knock against my guy. It's not a knock against you. It's not a knock against me. It's just the nature of the training. Not everybody is meant for that. Not everybody's trained for that. And the idea that we can just create special forces out of hide, like, you know, some sort of magic pixie dust, and then throw it at problems all around the world and fix terrorism. It's a joke. It's a joke, guys. And, and, and these, these are the very issues we need to question. We need to read through the headlines. Challenge the Washington Post and the New York Times to talk more about foreign policy. Challenge your congressmen and senators to actually take a stand on foreign policy outside the mainstream. Demand that we talk about this. Because if we don't, I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to turn on MSNBC every night, and they're going to be talking about Russia. Russia, 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 Russia Gate. Not saying that's not a big story, but it's not the only story. Or if you don't like that type of news, turn on Fox News. What do you get? Uh, you get state TV. That's what you get. You get uh, President Trump has been right about everything he's ever done. To question him is to hate America. Good night. And oh, by the way, keep waging the, the war on Christmas. You know, I mean, that, that, that's it. That's Fox yep, News. That's but it. like, where is the outlet that's talking about foreign policy? Where's the outlet that's that's bringing Nick Terse onto TV and saying, hey, Nick, uh, you're an expert on U.S. Special Operations Forces in Africa. How's it how's it going over there? So he could say, I'll tell you how it's going, guys. It's fucking terrible. It's yep. a fucking madhouse over there, and we're making it worse. We don't even have those conversations in the mainstream media. We don't even talk about it anymore. And it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. Some of this is making me think about what, what you and I talked about with, uh, with Colonel Dadis about the, the perception of, of what can be done. You know, is that you can't just simply say, like you were saying, you know, 12 guys, the right training in the right place, they'll get the job done. It, 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 no military objective is ever that simple. But when we go to our media, if we go to, and I'm meaning like films and TV and stuff, special forces troops are, are unstoppable. They're, they're trained in every language. They're trained in every form of martial arts. They, I mean, we essentially deify them in, in certain ways. And it's not that they're not good at what they do, but that doesn't give respect to what they do, which is to, you know, it, it, well, I guess it depends on the unit, but to operate effectively far, far away from conventional forces and to do specific objectives. The reason I'm saying this is you mentioned about Jack Reed and, you know, it, it our experience lends into our decisions. If you're a civilian and you have absolutely no concept of what Special Operations Forces does, where are you going to look? To, to, to fill that void, to answer that question. Are you going to look, you know, to a, a podcast like ours? Are you going to read the Washington Post? Or are you going to remember what you saw in Black Hawk Down and... Uh, crap, I'm <laughs> blanking on some of the other ones right now. But yeah, the, one, the, other, the one of... The, the, the other ones, yeah. Uh, Hurt Locker. Right? Hurt Locker, yes. That, that, was, that was the other one I was thinking of. And, and it's not that there's not, you know, slabs of truth or a little tiny slices of truth in some of these films, but they don't add adequate credence to what it is actually like to be there. It doesn't present the boredom of combat. Most people don't ever hear about how boring combat is most of the time. It's just that when you're being shot at and then you go on to do something else, everything else feels, feels watered down. But it's not something that we really think about. 
my point is, is that we have to have that more honest discussion about the human being element of it. This is what we're sending them to do. They're not supermen. They, you know, they're this far away from their next resupply. This is what they're, you know, and and if we're overthinking about uh, Tears of the Sun, is that that Bruce Willis movie? I'm sure you've seen it. Right. Um, right. You know it, it, that they're they're like they're not Superman carrying an M4, and they need to be seen as human beings, and they need to be seen as having human limitations. Certainly, the limitations of special operators, but if that's all we're doing, if we just put a blanket stamp on it, say they're special forces, they'll do it. The mission will get done. That's how we get shit done where people die that are not supposed to. That's when, when stuff gets forced together, like we're talking about with conventional forces being shoved in to do SF type stuff or just SF guys pushed to their brink, pushed to the absolute furthest limit. I haven't slept for days, nobody else in the area to help us. And we're still dealing with incoming fire. You know, the, the we have to see the human element. Yeah, you raise some great you raise some great points, and 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 that's something that we always have to remember is that human element. It's so easy to forget when you look at the macro picture. And now we present part two of our sit down with Vietnam expert Colonel Greg Dadis. Hey, you know, you mentioned the you know the key battle of Bastogne, and then the Idrang Valley in '65, and of course. Chamberlain at Little Round Top. It seems that one of the key pivot points that's remembered in the Vietnam War is uh, the Tet Offensive. Mm -hmm. And and that got me thinking because you recently published a piece uh, this week in War on the Rocks uh, about sort of strategy and the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive in 68. You know, it was a lengthy article, but what would you say were the key takeaways from, from your piece? And, you know, what dare I say? can we learn from both the Vietnamese and American sides of the, of the Tet Offensive and the Tet Campaign? Yeah. To me, I think there's two big takeaways. The first is we should challenge the, the larger narrative that this was a, a military victory turned political defeat, because I, I think that's a problematic way to, to think about war more generally. That if, if we believe our, our favorite Prussian um, Clausewitz that war um, is, is very much a political act, then isn't there problems when you say that this was a military victory and a political defeat? Um, because what it does is it takes war out of its natural context. Right. Um, Which you can't possibly understand without understanding the whole of it. Exactly. And so military officers in particular, especially those that were involved in Tet, that was the comforting narrative that they wanted to tell, right? That we won this 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 hard-fought contest. Yes, we might have been surprised early on. We, we quickly regained our footing, and and we achieved a military victory on the battlefield. And that victory was thrown away. Um, I just think we need to be careful of that because it, um, I think it furthers the gap between officers and and civilian policymakers. It it it, it sets up the military as an us versus them proposition when you look at the American home front, which I think should be even more troubling today when there already are gaps between um, the American population and its small volunteer professional military force. Um, so I think that's a, one of the key takeaways from Tet um, that we should all consider just in terms, Danny, going back to your point about kind of collective memory and, and contested history and how we remember this event. Because I think that's just a lead you down a dangerous path, I think. Um, for... The strategist, 
I think what's important about Ted is, and what I really focused in on the article and more on the rocks was uh, this being a, a really a historical case study, if not tutorial, on the problems of flawed assumptions. That on all sides in, in late 1967 and early 1968, um, what led up to the Tet Offensive was, was just a set of, of flawed assumptions, both from the Hanoi Politburo and the MACD headquarters and all the way to the, the White House, um, that there were very certain expectations of how military force was going to create conditions for victory. And none of those assumptions played out. Um, the Hanoi Politburo, um, ultimately under the, um, or increasingly under the leadership of, of Le Zuan, believed that a general offensive across the breadth of South Vietnam was going to lead to a general uprising. They assumed that, that the South Vietnamese government was unstable. They assumed that the, this revolutionary spirit was just under the surface of the South Vietnamese population. They assumed that the Arvin, the Army of the South Vietnam, um, Army of South Vietnam was going to, to crumble as soon as this offensive took hold. None of those assumptions played out as, as Lei Zhuan wanted them to. And then on the American side, I think there was a number of odd assumptions that were just as bad. Uh, Westmoreland and uh, the MACV intelligence staff assumed that the enemy did not have the capacity to launch such a, a wide-ranging offensive. Uh, they assumed that um, their intelligence picture was accurate when, in fact, it wasn't. Um, and so for us all to think about when we have certain expectations about what military force can provide us when, when outlining objectives, because I still think we're grappling with that today. We have this faith in American military power that's based on a series of, of unchallenged and unexamined assumptions that, that I think are putting us in this place where we're at and have been for quite some time. It, it's hard to get out of a, uh, a state of perpetual endless war when you continue to assume that war will get you out of that. Right. And it doesn't seem like it's ending anytime soon. If only if we're, if soldiers are dying in modest numbers or more modest numbers, it seems that the actual campaigns are uh, widening, if anything else. And it makes you wonder on whether there is a, uh, a lack of strategy or sort of a dearth of strategy at the top. Um, no, we just figured what, out a way, I think, to put it under the radar of the American public to expand our great point or approach. Um, and our militarization of, of American foreign policy, but but in one sense, I you know I think the Obama administration and and I think the Trump administration as well as well have learned um, certain lessons from the Bush administration when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan, and so when the Obama administration comes in and sees that there is a, a lack of commitment for large footprints abroad, um, when there is increasing concern about and questions about why American soldiers are dying overseas, then, then the strategic imperative then becomes one of ensuring that the footprint is still there. It's just that it's a footprint not seen by the American public. And thus we can continue to engage in military action overseas, but in a way um, that is quite nearly invisible to, to our citizens. And you do barely see it on TV. I mean, you would never right. know from 
either side of the mainstream media that the United States bombed seven countries this year. It's, it's really not reported, or at least it's not looked at in its totality. It's more individual incidents, like if a few special forces soldiers get killed right. in West Africa, then that's a story for a little while. But really, we spend more time worrying about the daily tweets and Russia Russiagate. So you absolutely bring up a, a great point about keeping this under the radar. Yeah, and I think the hard part is to try and get Americans who traditionally have been more worried about domestic issues, um, day-to-day issues that affect their lives, um, and, and, and generate enough interest where they're willing to, to learn enough about these campaigns where they can challenge the assumptions on which they're based. Well, this podcast is going to achieve that. That's the <laughs> this, this is the tipping point, I think. <laughs> well, it makes me proud to be here, then. Well, you're, you're part of it. You're part of the solution. You just didn't know it. Yeah. Well, you were also prominently uh, featured as an advisor uh, in the credits on the recent 10-part Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. Uh, took me about a month and a half, but I, I finally finished and really enjoyed the series, and I think my wife even tolerated it. Um, you know, I found it's it pretty instructive. Yeah, it's, yeah a it's, it's a rough watch. Yeah. You know, that said, I've read articles, a number of articles, really on both sides, if you want to say there are sides. Uh, politically, I suppose they come from generally the far left and far right of the spectrum, deeply criticizing the Ken Burns documentary. And, you know, as, as such a prominent advisor on the, on the piece, I was wondering, you know, why you think that is? I think you've covered some of this territory. You know, why is this generating such criticism, such passion? And then your overall impression of the final product and, and whether you think those criticisms are fair. I've gotten certainly quite a, quite a bit of email uh, traffic on this. I, I think it's it goes back to the point I made earlier about this collective memory of, beaten, of Vietnam being so contested. And in part, it's still such a visceral experience for many Americans. Um, so as an example, um, after the documentary, uh, the final episode aired, I was invited to a panel in Washington, D.C., um, where Bob Shirley was on the panel. And, um, you know, Bob was a major um, in a unit in Vietnam, had served on the MACD staff, um, is, is still very angry, I think, about the outcome uh, and believes that we had abandoned our South Vietnamese ally and, and is, is very emotional about that abandonment. Um, but as he was sitting on the panel and, and, and giving his remarks, at one point he paused and then said, it's quite obvious, um, and I'm paraphrasing as closely as I can here, it's quite obvious that Ken Burns doesn't love America very much. Wow. Um, and so I think that's why you see so much emotion with this um, with this documentary. And in large part, I think it was the objective of both Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, the co-director, to, to achieve that, that the byline of the, of the film is there is no single truth in war. And so what I saw... Um, with Ken and Lynn and the entire Florentine film's crew was this, this immense commitment to showing multiple competing voices, right? That I'm going to get the, the young Marine that was proud of his service. I'm going to get another Marine who, who joined the Vietnam veterans against the war. I'm going to get mothers that lost their sons and anti-war activists and uh, Vietnamese voices from the North and the South, communist and non-communist. And 
I think when you put all those voices in, into one collective whole, you're going to get um, the reaction that you got. Um, I think some of the critique is, um, and I was quite amazed by this, and part of it really speaks to the challenges, I think, of documentarians is, you know, when I first heard that this documentary was going to be 18 hours, I thought, oh, my God, this is, you know, they're going to get everything in here. When, in fact, 18 hours was nothing. That they, they still had to engage in a sort of reduction themselves because, you know, just explaining French colonialism, which led to the French-Indo-Chinese War and the Indo-Chinese Communist Movement and issues of Vietnamese nationalism, and then you get into decisions about American... America entering the war, which lead to decisions about American strategy that have to put it put in place within the larger Cold War construct and issues of presidential leadership from Truman to Kennedy and Nixon and Johnson, um, dealing with non-military aspects like pacification. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost dizzying the amount of information that you've got to try and pack in here. So I think that's where a lot of the criticism comes from. I mean, I being an advisor, I still think that the version of American strategy that they tell is is a bit too simplistic and too focused on military action. Um, I know other scholars have said the same about uh, the French Indo-Chinese piece of it. But to me, there's there's value in this documentary because it, it can be a, an excellent starting point for future exploration of war to, to generate some interest, to hopefully have folks that are on opposite ends of the spectrum be able to have a conversation about this war with um, hopefully a bit more empathy. Um, and to me, that that's, the I think, the greatest value of this documentary. It's that if you can view it and, and watch somebody with whom you disagree and have empathy for their argument and try and understand their argument, um, perhaps it'll get us a little bit closer to doing what we so desperately need in this country, which is having conversations with others that we don't necessarily agree with in terms of their politics or viewpoints or whatever. And that is increasingly difficult. Uh, if I can find a way to talk politics with my father, then I'll consider that a, a victory for America. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm not certain it's going to happen anytime soon. Now, your points about why the documentary you know, garnered such passionate criticism and, and also you know, praise uh, fairly, I think, is, is really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I recently uh, published a piece, uh, hint, hint, uh, listeners, uh, called Wrong on Nam, Wrong, Wrong on Terror, that, that you actually uh, previously read and gave me some input on. And what I'm trying to do there is, you know, derive some connection between the, the books and the conclusions of a lot of senior military officers uh, regarding Vietnam. A lot of these guys are fans of uh, uh, Sorley, as he talks about um, Summers' book. You know, I definitely recognize uh, as a historian, and I have to say this because he used to be the boss and would kill me if I went to a simple linear lessons learned. But what would you tell, uh, you know, a lay student or a military officer that they could take from the Vietnam experience um, and its similarities and differences from the war on terror, if, if not what to think, sort of maybe yeah. how to think about war? Well, I think that's it. I think it's the larger question is 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 just that it's um, it's a question of what question should I ask, and and how should I explore the past? And uh, as we talked about numerous times uh, back at West Point, that that history is not about lessons. And um, this was 
Jen Keesling, um, who's one of the professors there, used to harp on this all the time that there's a there's a, a slight but important difference between lessons and perspective. And the problem with with lessons is I think you, especially in an organization like the U.S. Army, it, it leads you to checklists, right? We mm. we like to read David Galula's book on counterinsurgency because he's got a, an eight step process for how to win in, in an insurgency against an insurgency. Um, that's not the value of studying Vietnam, I don't think. Um, I think it's much better to to try and look back on this moment in time and, and see where we can gain perspective on, on what questions to ask and how to ask them. Um, and I'm trying not to use it as a cop-out, so, um, but I think it's important. Um, if I had to, if you had to pin me down, I think I would go back to um, a uh, very thin volume written by Arthur Schlesinger in uh, early 1967 called The Bitter Heritage. And um, the subtitle of the book, I think, is actually really important, and it's called Vietnam and American Democracy. And in a chapter in the book, Schlesinger has a, a, a fifth chapter, The Roots of Our Trouble, and he asks this question, you know, how have we managed to imprison ourselves in this series of dilemmas? So he's basically asking, like, how did we get here in Vietnam? And his answer is, is I think, pretty profound and, and one that it still gives us um, – a lot of cause for thought today. He says, one reason is a resurgence of old illusions, the illusion of American omnipotence and the illusion of American omniscience. Hmm. And to me, that's, that's what's important about studying Vietnam, that we need to challenge those illusions of American omnipotence, that study of Vietnam is a study in the limits of American power. It's a study of seeing how military means are sometimes, arguably oftentimes, a very imperfect tool for achieving political objectives. And I think with that is a sub-perspective to be gained here is that local voices matter, that we are, we are not the center of the universe. That even in the Cold War, in this larger bilateral contest between American inspired democracy and, and seemingly Soviet-inspired communism, um, that oftentimes the American entrants weren't part of local decision-making processes. Um, and I think that's important for us to realize today as we continue to engage in wars like Iraq and Syria and uh, Afghanistan and as we continue to establish some type of presence in Africa or larger presence in Africa, um, that those are two important things for us to think about, that um, how do we evaluate the limits of our power abroad um, and how do we incorporate local voices so they matter to us as we're developing and then implementing our foreign policy. Um, and I would suggest that, that Vietnam um, is an opportunity for us to think about how we don't incorporate those lessons, if you will, um, all too well. We're still very uncomfortable talking about limits of American power. We're still very uncomfortable with any narrative um, that doesn't place the United States at the center of the storyline. Um, and I think that has repercussions um, culturally here at home. I think it has repercussions clearly uh, with our foreign policy, 
And I think it leads to a militarization of our foreign policy when we continue to rely on that, that military tool to achieve our, our foreign policy objectives. Really a great point. And we're both fans of Andrew Basevich's book, The yeah. Limits of Power, which is, I know you used to assign, I believe, uh, in one of your classes on the Cold right. War. And uh, I, I like your answer there because you don't talk about tactics that we can apply and you don't talk about necessarily even operational art that we can apply from Vietnam directly to Iraq and you avoid those checklists, but instead uh, bring up a larger point, really, which is the, the limits of American power. You know, we've taken up a decent amount of your time here, but I, I just thought of... Um, Henry, do you have anything else before I ask one last question? The last thing I was going to ask about is go, going back to the documentary a little bit. Um, Daniel Ellsberg was not asked or invited to participate in the documentary, and I was wondering what you thought about that, Greg. Uh, I didn't know he wasn't asked, um, which is interesting. Um, and clearly, I think... Um, Ellsberg is an important part of the storyline, uh, not just in uh, his role with the Pentagon Papers, but also as a RAND analyst and as a uh, former serving um, Marine soldier. Um, and that, I think, continues to be an important conversation that we should have um, in terms of looking back at this moment, especially with the Pentagon Papers. And I haven't seen the movie yet, The Post. Um, but to, to consider differences between patriotism and um, what might be considered treasonous behavior, sharing what are secrets um, or state secrets. Um, so I, I didn't realize that he hadn't been invited. Um, it's certainly uh, an important part of the conversation we should all have about Vietnam that obviously we're continuing to have today with Snowden and Manning about um, that tension between national security and uh, public knowledge and freedom of, of information. I think that um, going back to the to the looking at the at the whole picture and not just going for simplistic lessons, um, I think that it's important to talk about the I wouldn't say the demographics of who usually become soldiers, but about um, um, the lessons that we bring in and. Mm -hmm. There's been tons of stuff in the news about our country's uh, apathy towards history and especially learning history when, when we're younger. Um, you know, I, 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 where could a person go to find, I mean, other than the Tom Dispatch and stuff, but something simple enough to understand. That's what people want is they want simplicity. If you can't, if it doesn't make sense to me the first time you explain it to me, I, I don't, I don't want to know about it. And trying to take those. Right harder steps into the discussion about warfare and that it can't be a one-dimensional discussion. If all you're going to do is tag your favorite general and your favorite strategy and say, if they'd simply done this, it completely ignores the rest of what happens there. But lots of Americans want to do that. You know, the Fox news group definitely wants to only talk about the page, the patriotism of our great yeah, nation and, and, you know, waving around the flag of Sean Hannity and all that kind of shit. I guess I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the hope for us that our, that we can get back to educating ourselves about the reality of war. Yeah, and I think that's an important point of it, right, that there are certain myths just on, on being a warrior and, and uh, militarized masculinity that are very much a part of our nation 
I would argue, going all the way back to George Washington. Um, and so it, it is important for us to, to challenge the patriotic notion in American history that we are and always have been uh, a country that is um, that is on the side of right, that doesn't make mistakes, um, that is continually evolving for the better, um, that it's important for us to kind of think about the, the, the dark underbelly of American history as well, because I think that's where um, we can also gain perspective is by looking at the times where um, our aspirations failed us, where um, we didn't live up to the ideals that we profess, um, where um, we occasionally took steps back in terms of defining just the very basic word democracy. Um, and I think it's also, you bring up a good point, uh, a challenge for historians. Uh, I still remember Russell Wigley telling our graduate seminar class that historians that, that, that are so opaque in their writing and just simply write for other historians, that they're not doing a public service. Um, that for history to be valuable, it has to be consumed by the public. It has to be consumed by more than just other historians. And so I think you're right that historians have to um, do the hard work of, of basing their argument in, in evidence, um, of challenging um, certain narratives and, and, and patriotic approaches to history. But the end product has to be something that can be consumed by the American public. And there are folks out there that can do that. If you look at uh, Ron Chernow's biographies on Grant and Hamilton, clearly there is a, a market out there and a, and a public that is willing to, to consume that product. It's just got to be done in a way that um, is accessible for the American public um, so they can equally gain some value by reading our history. Absolutely. I, I, Danny and I have talked pretty extensively about the, um, the fight of an intellectual to be in the military, <clears throat> to consume the things that you do, to, to see the events that you do, and to still push yourself to make sure that you look at those situations with that intellectual mind, that it's not, you know, we, that the warrior ethos does not cover everything, but I know for me and Danny and I've talked about this too, you know, the 18 young year old young man that I was is gone now. Right. I believed so many different things back then, but that's the group I worry about is the people getting ready to raise the right hand. Yeah. And I think that the key is for officers then in, in all branches of service to, to challenge that sense of anti-intellectualism. That's, that's not only in the, the armed forces, but also in American society to allow that young 18 year old to, um, to prove himself or herself as a, as a soldier or Marine or, um, uh, but also to, to be able to comfortably embrace an intellectual study of their profession and not be seen as, as, as nerdy or, or outside the, um, you know, that, that masculine image of the warrior. Um, so I think that's an important point for all of us. It also our our own our own sense of patriotism ends up taking a back seat. Right. And I don't mean the way that we have it, but the way that other people see ours. That if you're an intellectual, it immediately goes to that, and it that you're assumed that you either don't love your country right. or aren't good at the job. 
Yeah, and I tell my students. And it has nothing to do with that. No, I tell my students all the time that, that you're more patriotic by challenging a patriotic version of history. Absolutely. Um, no, I, uh, I watched an interview. I've, I've seen a couple of them lately. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg was on. He was on Intercepted uh-huh. um, two, three episodes ago. And then uh, he did an interview on Radio Who, What, Why. And that was when the, the, the host mentioned that he, he hadn't been invited and he talked about it a little bit. And um, Going back to, the, you know, that inherent patriotism thing, mm-hmm. it, the, the same idea, the same downfall lands on anyone who could be seen as a whistleblower. Right, right, right. And so and I, I've had that thought a bunch of times about Chelsea Manning is that this is a, even though that she was a junior intel analyst, she knew the cost. Right. She knew what was going to happen to her when that came out. And so to me, that is a much greater sense of patriotism than the person who doesn't actually analyze what they're doing as the soldier, the Marine, the whatever, you know, whatever job they happen yeah, to have. Right. But it also, what about their sense of patriotism? What about the idea that 35 years in prison was okay to her to share this truth with us? Right. Well, I think that's even goes to just the basic debate over Colin Kaepernick, right? That he's clearly making a decision. You know, some see it as, as a important um, instigator of a larger national conversation on pro- police brutality. Others see it as as uh, unpatriotic and you know somehow disparaging our troops, which wasn't intended at all. Right? So yeah, yeah. No, I, I love, and then and then the the, the love of the troops becomes the wedge right, right, right. that we use to say that is say, well, you, you don't agree with the war. Well, you don't, you don't love the troops. Right, right, right. And same with, with the Kaepernick thing and that people do understand the national anthem symbolic, right? We're not actually standing there praising some literal person, you know, it's, it, and to, to see the ignorance that people attach to that, it's, it's really disappointing. None of the major Trump players that are national security council wise ever saw any any action in Vietnam. And I think that there's a there's a there's a metric of war that we have as Americans has gotten used to under the the dome of Halliburton, you know, that that contractors mm-hmm. and Hess goes to be built and right. all, all kinds of other things in that um uh holy crap, let me make sure I still can remember my point. Oh, um oh, I remember now. Um but anyways, it's, it's the apparatus of warfare. I remember reading Citizen Soldiers by um, uh, Stephen Ambrose. Right. And he talked about in there in vivid detail about a lot of the minutia of being a soldier, being on a long convoy and having to, to park a plane and stuff like that. We've gotten accustomed to a certain amount of comfort in warfare. There shouldn't be comfort in warfare. And we shouldn't be going out of our way to create it because it incentivizes people to want to stay there. Right. You know, and I, I, with, you know, and it's not certainly not for everybody, but for guys that have served both in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of times, you know, nice chow halls and nice places to sleep. And it doesn't push you to end a war when you're that comfortable. Right, right, right. And, and that's considering that warfare in and of itself, the combat is still freaking horrifying right but so but so much less so right oh were there any senior level dissenters during the vietnam war 
And by senior level dissenters, um, I'm talking about like Eric Shinseki telling Congress that it's going to take 200,000 troops to march into Iraq. Mm-hmm. Someone who was, who was willing to be that publicly honest during the war, but in uniform. Uh, not necessarily in uniform. I think the the key dissenter, at least in the Johnson administration, was under Secretary of State George Ball, who really served as a dissenting voice um, within cabinet discussions about uh, troop deployments and whether the United States was actually going to deploy to Vietnam to begin with. Um, but for the most part, I. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, I don't think you see anybody in uniform um, at the top level that is really dissenting against policy um, and strategy, in, in part because the strategy itself is left to those military officers. So, hey, well, thanks again for doing this with us. Yeah, and thanks as for having me tell, on. We run a very it. professional operation. Luckily, Kirsten knows how to edit very well. <laughs> <laughs> we were chatting about that while you were gone. Well, make, make, yeah. make, me sound, make me sound better than I am, that's all. <laughs> that, that's what we do. We'll try to get your handsomeness to come through in audio. All right, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks again, Greg. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.